I invite you to turn to the book of Exodus chapter 12, where we'll be this morning. We'll finish up chapter 12 and then get part of the way through chapter 13 as we move along in our Exodus sermon series. And the next few weeks, we'll finish it up in chapter 15. We'll get the Israelites out of Egypt and across the Red Sea, and then we'll stop there before I head out on sabbatical for a couple months. But this morning, we'll start in Exodus 12, verse 43. This morning's sermon is really all about rituals. Um, We are a people of rituals, and that's how humans are made. It's how we're wired. We do the same things week in and week out, and we have our own rituals, whether it be prayers before bed or even church on a Sunday morning. Athletes have rituals, sometimes strange rituals. Various athletes have rituals they go through before games. So, for example, Brian Urlacher, former NFL linebacker for the Chicago Bears, before every game would have two Girl Scout cookies. No more, no less. That was his ritual. That was what was needed, was exactly two Girl Scout cookies. My favorite hockey player growing up, a goaltender by the name of Patrick Waugh, whenever he skated onto the ice towards his net, he would make sure to step over the blue and red lines on the ice. He would not step on them. That was part of his ritual and his superstition. And then in the net, he would talk to his goalposts and have conversations with them. That was part of his weird ritual. Uh, college football coach Les Miles, who most recently coached the Kansas Jayhawks, apparently has a ritual of eating some of the grass of the field before each game taking a bite out of that. So that's a strange ritual. And strange rituals aren't limited to the world of sports. I'll say the name of this town wrong, but at an annual event in Lopri, Thailand, a local set out 3,000 kilograms. I didn't convert that to pounds. I don't know how much that is. 3,000 kilograms of fruit and vegetables every year in an annual event to be eaten by monkeys. So every year they set out tons of fruits and vegetables for a monkey buffet. There's a temple in India, and there's a tradition tied to that temple, a 500-year-old tradition where uh, couples would go and make vows and then, I guess, somewhat dedicate their kids. And the way they would do this is they would uh, throw their kids or drop them off the 50-foot balcony and to the ground where their family would catch the kid in a cloth or in a fabric and, and parachute them down. So that was how they dedicated their, their children. So there's a Mother's Day idea for you if that's something you'd like to engage in. Uh, one tribe in Madagascar has a funeral tradition where every seven years they go into, they dig up their people from their burial sites, they rewrap them in cloth, and then dance with their deceased and dead and uh, some type of festival. And then we in North America, we have Elf on the Shelf, which is a tradition that marketers have convinced us is a thing. Israel has strange rituals. That's what this passage is all about. The context is the Israelites finally being liberated out of Egypt. It is past Passover night. They have um, judgment has come upon the firstborn sons of Egypt. Now they're being uh, ushered out, Israelites, out of Egypt and heading into the wilderness and eventually into the promised land. So that's the context. And in that context, God gives them rituals that they will perform in perpetuity. And when they settle in the land, these are things they are supposed to do. And then the main point of these rituals is that God gives his people rituals to remember their redemption. 
as we try and sum up what's going on in this whole passage, I think that sums up the idea that God gives his people, this, these three rituals, gives his people rituals so that they might remember their redemption. He gives his people rituals to remember their redemption. Well, far in the future, after many years have passed, they would perform these rituals and recall, remember how God had redeemed them. There are three rituals in our text, the Passover, Feast of Unleavened Bread, and then the consecration of the firstborn. And all three of these rituals are kind of intended, again, to remember redemption. And I think as each part of the text focuses on one of the rituals, there's a question that can be asked that answers uh, something more broadly about rituals. So we'll have three questions about these rituals that God gives that helps guide our understanding. The first question kind of arises from our description of Passover in verses 43 through 51. And the first question is, who can participate in the ritual? Who can participate in the ritual? This is the third time in Exodus that God has described the Passover and this uh, law of the Passover. And what distinguishes this time is that this one focuses really on who can participate in it, who can take part in the Passover, who is eligible for the Passover meal, who can participate in the ritual. Look at verse 43. And the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, This is the statute of the Passover. No foreigner shall eat of it. But every slave that is bought for money may eat of it after you have circumcised him. No foreigner or hired worker may eat of it. It shall be eaten in one house. You shall not take any of the flesh outside the house, and you shall not break any of its bones. All the congregation of Israel shall keep it. If a stranger shall sojourn with you and would keep the Passover to the Lord, let all his males be circumcised. Then he may come near and keep it. He shall be as a native of the land. But no uncircumcised person shall eat of it. There shall be one law for the native and for the stranger who sojourns among you. All the people of Israel did just as the Lord commanded Moses and Aaron. And on that very day, the Lord brought the people of Israel out of the land of Egypt by their hosts. So again, we have a little bit of law, regulation, description of, about the Passover. It gives further details on how the Passover should be eaten. And this section also emphasizes the wholeness, the unity of the Passover. Notice it says, all the congregation of Israel shall keep it. There to be one people. This isn't a personal or private meal. It is a whole congregational church meal, so to speak, that all of the nation of Israel was to take together. And they weren't to take it from house to house. as One Passover lamb was to uh, be contained in a house, so they didn't divide it up or take it out. In fact, it says the animal is not to have its bones broken. The Passover lamb is to remain whole. And we're not entirely sure why that law is there, but it seems to be that is to, again, enforce that uh, the, the whole Passover lamb is to remain uh, as one piece, not divided up like the way you divide up Thanksgiving leftovers and send them out to all your guests and get them out of the house. No, there's a unity and a wholeness that the, the lamb is supposed to represent. And, I, and I really that whole picture doesn't become clear until far later, until we realize who this Passover lamb is actually about. Do you remember when Jesus was crucified? One of the things they did in crucifixion in order to speed up the crucifixion process, particularly if it was Sabbath and sundown was coming, 
They would want to speed up the crucifixion process so there wouldn't be any dead bodies hanging on a tree. That was against their ritual during Sabbath. So to speed up that process, they would break the legs of those being crucified so they would suffocate more quickly. They wouldn't be able to support themselves. So they would often break legs to speed up the crucifixion process. And then they went to Jesus to do that, to make sure they would get him off the cross by sundown. What does John 19 say, verses 33 and 36? But when they came to Jesus and saw that he was already dead, they did not break his legs. Verse 36, for these things took place that the scripture might be fulfilled. Not one of his bones will be broken. So whatever the initial reason for not breaking the lamb's bones, we find the ultimate reason in Jesus Christ. And I find it so fascinating that some little minute law in the Passover here in Exodus 13 finds its greater fulfillment and greater meaning in Jesus Christ. It was a way of preparing all of God's people for all time, to look to Jesus and say, that is our Passover lamb. He is our whole sacrifice, our complete sacrifice that covers all people who belong to God, sufficient to save the whole people as one. There's an emphasis on unity and wholeness. The question becomes, who can be part of this whole community? Who can participate in the feast, in the Passover? First, we learn the foreigner cannot, the, the person who is not a native of Israel, they're a different ethnicity, and often that would mean if they're part of a different nation, they have a different gods. They worship other gods. So if they are a foreigner who just happens to be in the land at the time of Passover, they cannot eat Passover with you. There's a certain fencing of the Passover that goes on here. There's a restriction around it. But no foreigner can eat of it, neither can a hired worker. So that would be a person, again, of a different ethnicity, different nation. They are there. Um, they're hired to work for a short period of time, then they'll go back to where their home country, their country of origin, or whatever it may be. But they're just there temporarily. And God's law says those people may not eat Passover with you. And at first that sounds so exclusive. How would you exclude people from this, this meal? But notice what the Lord says. There is a mechanism by which those who are outside can come in. But those who are foreigners can become a part of you. In fact, even slaves could participate if they were circumcised. The slaves in, your, in Israel could become covenant members if they take the sign of the covenant and are circumcised. We don't have full time to get into the full conversation around this, but it might strike us that, that Israel had slaves. And the reality is in that fallen world that all cultures at the time had slaves as part of uh, reality in a fallen world. One day there will be a time, and God is working towards that, when there will be no slaves and all where God's people will just be slaves to him and, and free in him. And there will be complete liberty. But that's not the world the Israelites were living in. And, and what makes Israel stand out is that they were to treat their slaves differently. They had experienced harsh slavery in Egypt. They knew what that was like. And God regulated the, this practice for Israelites that they would do it differently than the nations around them. 
In fact, when we think of slavery, we think of the Atlantic slave trade. That's the first thing that comes to our mind. That kind of slavery by ethnicity, by skin color, and based upon stealing other people and selling them, that kind of practice was outlawed in Israel and was punishable by death. Exodus 21.16 says, Whoever steals a man and sells him, and anyone found in possession of him, shall be put to death. So there's harsh laws against that kind of slavery that we think of. Additionally, God gave the Israelites a number of laws that regulated how they treated their servants. And then maybe most astonishing, most shocking, is that their servants, their slaves, could become part of the covenant community. I, I think when the original people are reading this passage and the original cultures are looking at this, the part that they would be shocked at is not that they were slavery. The part that they would be shocked at is that you let your slaves eat this meal with you? That your, your servants... <laughs> They can actually become part of your worshiping community? And the answer is yes. God has made a way for even those who are in the low position to become part of the community if they are circumcised. In other words, if they come by faith. And if they take the sign, they can become part of the community. In the same way, sojourners could. So who's a sojourner? A sojourner is a person, again, from a different people who has come and traveled with Israel and then set up residence with them and determined to live with them for a while. That's a sojourner, somebody who's traveling with them and is kind of part of the people, though they are of different origin. And they can become like a native if they choose to be circumcised and choose to become part of the people of God. So God has made a way for outsiders, as the text beautifully says, to come near. They could become full participants of the covenant people of God. Alec Motier, commentator, writes, A non-Israelite had a personal decision to make, whether to remain as a resident alien, pure and simple, or personally to embrace Yahweh and his promises. This is part of Israel's witness that they would be a community where outsiders could come and you can become part of us. All you have to do is come by faith and take on the sign of circumcision. And then this one law would apply to all. This one law of circumcision, that's how you have to enter in, would apply to all people, whether you're Israelite or non-Israelite. If you're an Israelite and you said, I refuse to be circumcised, then you can't be part of the Passover meal. You have to come by faith. And that law was applied fairly, whether you were Israelite by ethnicity or not. God treated it all fairly, but you have to make the decision to come by faith and be circumcised. So in many ways, and we've talked about this before, the, the people of God, the covenant people of God, old and new, are an exclusive and inclusive community. Any can come and be a part, but God has stipulated ways by which you are a part of us. And we don't get to make those rules because we are not God. And he is, and he has made it very simple. Just come by faith and demonstrate that faith, profess that faith by, in the Old Covenant, circumcision. Anyone can come, be part of this people. If you're a male, you're circumcised. If you're a female, in that context, then the male who would represent you would have to be circumcised, whether it be a family member or husband. But God prescribed the way, the mechanism for people to come in and be a part. I think there's a parallel here between old and new covenants. There's an initiatory right, the means by which people come into the community. In the Old Testament, that is circumcision. 
That's how you become part of the covenant community. And then an ongoing rite, an ongoing ritual, which is Passover, which you take and participate in ongoing. What are the parallels for us as a church? There's the initiatory rite. How do you come into the community? By profession of faith in baptism. And then the ongoing ritual and communion. We know communion has kind of been the replacement for or fulfillment of the Passover. Jesus instituted communion at the Passover meal. And Jesus is our new Passover, and we remember him through body and the cup, through body and blood and the bread and the cup. So, baptism being the sign by which we enter in by faith, communion being the ongoing sign, and I would say, here's where I'm going to offend some. I'm going to step on a few toes, and I'm going to say this not as an absolute rule, because I can't point to chapter and verse and say, see, here's what God's word says. So I I can't say this as an absolute rule, but I'll, I'll say this as a theological inference and best practice, that baptism comes before communion, and before communion is taken, one should be baptized in the same way that one was not allowed to take part in Passover until they were circumcised. There's an initiatory rite and an ongoing. I say that not to discourage communion, but to encourage baptism. That if you are a Christian and you want to demonstrate that, the way you do that first is by being baptized. That's how you profess your faith that I'm part of this community. And then ongoing, you take communion as an ongoing remembrance, an ongoing ritual. I think that's important. I think that's the pattern laid out in Scripture. I think that's consistent with the warning Paul gives in 1 Corinthians about communion and taking it in a way that is unbecoming or unworthy, or I would say maybe better, in a way without discerning the body, that Paul commands all who take communion to do that in in such a way that they can examine themselves. That they are not mistreating the church. And there's warnings there for those who are not part of the covenant community who would take communion. So I think that's important that we think through those things well. I'm not going to put, as your pastor, a law and a rule for you. I'm just going to say consider what God has said and the pattern that is given. And I would say if you want to become a Christian, if you want to take communion and be part of the covenant community, let's talk about baptism. Let's talk about how you can profess faith and be a part of the people. God has made a way for anyone to come and be a part of his people. So that answers the first question, who can participate in the ritual? The second question, I think, is answered through the description of the Feast of the Unleavened Bread. The second question is, what is the purpose of the ritual? What is the purpose of the ritual? I'll skip down to verse 3 of chapter 13. 1 and 2 kind of go with the section after. I'm going to skip down to verse 3. And verses 3 through 10 answer this question of what is the purpose of the ritual? Then Moses said to the people, Remember this day in which you came out from Egypt, out of the house of slavery. For by a strong hand the Lord brought you out from this place. 
no leavened bread shall be eaten. Today, in the month of Abib, you are going out. And when the Lord brings you into the land of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites, which he swore to your fathers to give you, a land flowing with milk and honey, you shall keep this service in this month. Seven days you shall eat unleavened bread. On the seventh day there shall be a feast to the Lord. Unleavened bread shall be eaten for seven days. No leavened bread shall be seen with you, and no leaven shall be seen with you in all your territory. You shall tell your son on that day, it is because of what the Lord did for me when I came out of Egypt. And it shall be to you as a sign on your hand and as a memorial between your eyes that the law of the Lord may be in your mouth. For with a strong hand the Lord has brought brought you out of Egypt. You shall therefore keep this statue at its appointed time from year to year. So now we move on to our second ritual, a feast of unleavened bread. And if you've been with us, we've, we've talked about this. I won't go over it in great detail, just the basics of the feast. Or it kind of began on Passover night, and you would eat unleavened bread, le- bread that had not risen, and you would eat unleavened bread for seven days, and on the seventh day there would be a great festival and feast. And no leavened bread was to be even found in their home, and now we hear in the whole territory, in the whole land, no leavened bread anywhere. Get it all out. That was the rule. The whole community was to work together in this. No leavened bread anywhere, and it was a sign, a remembrance of how they had to leave Egypt quickly. They had to go suddenly in the night without having time for their bread to rise, so to speak. So the unleavened bread was a symbol of how fast and how sudden the Lord had brought them out of Egypt. And it's clear that these instructions here are given for future generations. Notice that God gives the uh, instructions for when you're in the land, that land that right now the Canaanites and the Jebusites and the Hittites and the Amorites that, that they're taking, they're populating right now, when you come into that land, here's how you are to keep this ongoing for generations. And stipulations are, are given so that they would do this for generations. And then in that, we learn that the purpose of this ritual is remembrance. So that when they're in the land, when they've been there many years, lest they forget about what God has done, they would do this so they they would remember and recall how God had taken them out of Egypt. So they passed down this tradition and said to teach to your sons, teach to your children, your sons and daughters, this ritual. And what I love about this ritual and rituals like this is you don't have to be a scholar. You don't have to have your Bible memorized from cover to cover to do this. It's a simple ritual with clear uh, lines given by God so that anybody can do it and anybody can teach their children, oh, when we do this, this is why we do this, because God has saved us and delivered us. It shall be a memorial, uh, God says metaphorically, there's, it's like a sign on your hand or between your eyes. Later, generations of Jewish people would take this very literally and some would actually put this between their eyes. So you've heard of the term phylactery. It's a little box and it has scripture rolled up in it and this verse and maybe some others uh, and it would be kept on their eyes in a headband, a little box and scripture literally kept in front of their eyes. That's not what necessarily God means by this. He's saying that this ritual that you do is like a wristband almost or a sign right in front of your head so that when you do it you re- recall what God has done. Like a WWJD bracelet. You look down at it and you remember, okay, yeah, I'm supposed to act like Jesus. This is a ritual that is done that reminds you of what God has done. That gets to the whole point of rituals, like the Feast of Unleavened Bread, like the Passover, like communion. The purpose is remembrance, to call to mind how the Lord has saved his people. And note this. I think this is important, that God cares not only that 
You remember his works and salvation, but how? God cares how you do it. He gives stipulations and rules for the way it's to be done. Not necessarily extensive stipulations down to the wire. He doesn't tell you at what time of day you have to eat or anything like that. But he gives general rules and stipulations for this is how you are to remember your deliverance. God cares how he remembers his works in the same way that we care how people remember us. So in one sense, when I die, I don't care what you do. Like, I don't care what you do with my body. You can throw it off a cliff somewhere. It doesn't matter. I'm gone. Like, I don't care. But in another sense, if I found out that before my passing that people were planning a funeral service that would include, like, techno music and a a smoke machine and a fog machine and people passed out, like, black licorice and, and watched soccer, I'd be upset. Why? Because I hate those things. Right? Like, those aren't my favorite things, so why would you honor me that way? It would show that you don't know me, and maybe even despise me, right? You'd honor me in a way that's not consistent with who I am. In the same way, God gives rules and stipulations that we honor him in the way that actually brings him honor. Right? So it means we don't get to make up how we worship the Lord, but God actually gives us some tracks to run on. It's why we don't do Easter with bunny suits and giving away free cars. Because that is absolutely dishonoring to what the Lord has done in the cross and the resurrection and salvation of our souls. When we do that kind of silly stuff, it shows we don't understand who it is that we're worshiping or what he has done. So there are ways to properly honor the Lord. He cares how we do it and He gives us these stipulations so that we don't have to go crazy or reinvent the wheel so that they can be passed down from generation to generation, right? He makes it easy. He gives these rules. Here's how you hold the Feast of Unleavened Bread so that you can do it for generations. And it's not complicated. Makes it easy to pass down so that future generations can come near to the exodus itself. Consider these couple verses from Joshua 24. I find this fascinating. For those of you who know your Bible, you know the context of Joshua. It's after the first generation of the Israelites has passed. They've been wandering in the desert for 40 years, and now you have the next generation leading, and Joshua himself leading God's people. And Joshua 24, 6-7, God says to his people, Listen to this. Then I brought your fathers out of Egypt, and you came to the sea. And the Egyptians pursued your fathers with chariots and horsemen to the Red Sea. And when they cried to the Lord, he put darkness between you and the Egyptians and made the sea come upon them and cover them. And your eyes saw what I did in Egypt. Isn't that fascinating? Think about that. God is saying to the next generation, Your eyes saw what I did, but most of them didn't see it. Not literally, not physically, but because they had kept the statutes and had been passed down the traditions, they could, God could speak to them as if they had seen it themselves. And that's what the rituals do. We do these rituals so that we can see what God has done for ourselves. So that when we, for example, take communion... We bring the cross close to us. We weren't there literally 2,000 years ago, but as we take communion, Christ is near and we are participating in him and with him and it becomes 
real to us as if we were there standing at the place of the skull. Right? That's what the ritual does. It connects generations together. Because we're prone to forget. (laughs) We are forgetful people. We forget good things and bad things. Surprisingly easily. And I will always be reminded of this when I remember my wife, after she gave birth to our first child, and later said, not too far later, that wasn't that bad. And I think I remember being in the room. It seemed bad. Like, that seemed very difficult, but God allows us sometimes to forget and move on. We can forget hard things that we've come through, or we might think things weren't that bad, and then we we do this ritual to remember we were in bad shape. We were lost. We were condemned. We were damned. But God brought us near and saved us, and we're reminded of that every time we perform the ritual and it is communicated through generations so that we do not forget. So our children do not forget. The purpose of the ritual is to remember. Lastly, let's talk about what we are remembering. In the consecration of the firstborn, I think what's, what we're told here is what we re- are remembering. So we'll ask, what is remembered by the ritual? What is remembered by the ritual? We'll go back to verse 1 of 13, and we'll skip to 11 after that. The Lord said to Moses, Consecrate to me all the firstborn, whatever is the first to open the womb among the people of Israel, both of man and of beast, is mine. Then verse 11. When the Lord brings you into the land of the Canaanites, as he swore to you and your fathers, and shall give it to you, you shall set apart to the Lord all that first opens the womb. All the firstborn of your animals that are males shall be the Lord's. Every firstborn of a donkey you shall redeem with a lamb. Or if you will not redeem it, you shall break its neck. Every firstborn of man among your sons you shall redeem. And when in time to come, your son asks you, What does this mean? You shall say to him, By a strong hand the Lord brought us out of Egypt from the house of slavery. For when Pharaoh stubbornly refused to let us go, the Lord killed all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both the firstborn of man and the firstborn of animals. Therefore... I sacrifice to the Lord all the males that first opened the womb, all the firstborn of my sons I redeem. It shall be a mark on your hand or frontlets between your eyes, for by a strong hand the Lord brought us out of Egypt. So here is the ritual of the consecration of the firstborn. To consecrate something means basically to, to set it aside, to set it apart for service, or even to sanctify it. Um, in verse 12, it says, You shall set apart to the Lord. And that phrase, set apart, can be just as faithfully translated, pass over. <laughs> you can pass over your firstborn to the Lord. Why? Because he passed over your firstborn. And that's what's being remembered there, that God delivered the Israelites through the death of the firstborns in Egypt. So all the firstborns of Israel belong to God because God spared them. God spared the firstborn of man and animal. So some way or another, Hebrews were to set apart their firstborn to God. 
with animals is normally done through sacrifice. So your firstborn animals, you bring them to the tabernacle or to the temple, and you sacrifice them, and you make an offering there, contribute to the priests and to the temple or tabernacle, and you make your offering, and you sacrifice the firstborn. It's also a way of, again, recognizing, remembering that God spared your firstborn, and you make your offering, your first fruits to him. But there are two exceptions to this sacrifice. So you consecrate by sacrificing, except two things you don't sacrifice when you consecrate. The first, a donkey. And it seems totally random. Like, why is a donkey appearing here all of a sudden? They're a very practical reason. Most Israelites would have animals traveling with them, and they'd keep animals, and the donkey was the one animal that was unclean that they would have around. Most didn't have uh, enough wealth to have a horse or a camel, but most families, most households could have a donkey. And donkeys were valuable. They were their pack animal. And so it's kind of a, by God's grace, he has made the donkeys unclean so they would not have to sacrifice them because you could not sacrifice unclean animals in the tabernacle or temple. So this was an unclean animal, unworthy of being sacrificed in the temple or tabernacle. You couldn't sacrifice it. So... What do you do with this animal? Well, the firstborn of the donkeys. God says, well, instead, as a concession, you can offer up a sacrificial lamb in its place. That is called redemption. You redeem your donkey by buying it back with a lamb, sacrificing its place. God gives a way out, so you don't have to sacrifice your valuable animal, this unclean animal. And if you don't, you want to sacrifice a lamb instead, then you better kill your donkey because it belongs to me. But you can't sacrifice it or do anything that looks like a sacrifice, so you have to break its neck and kill it. And I've thought about this, and I don't know how you break a donkey's neck. I don't know what that process looks like, but it seems difficult. I don't know what kind of chokehold is required to do that. Um, I, I don't know. I'm assuming rocks are involved. But it sounds tedious, and God says, I'll give you a better way. <laughs> you can redeem your donkey with a lamb. So, okay, donkeys are excluded from sacrifice and consecration, and then there's one other creature that is excluded, and that is your sons. There are other pagan cultures, like the Canaanites, who had a practice of sacrificing their own children. The Israelites were not to do that. Instead of sacrificing their children, they would offer them up to God and redeem them, buy them back with a lamb. You have a sacrificial, sacrificial lamb in place of their sons. Numbers 18.16 also indicates that maybe, if not a lamb, the redemption price could be five shekels of silver. Leviticus 12 teaches that whenever a woman gave birth, part of the purity ritual was to offer up a lamb. And if the man and wife could not afford a lamb, they could offer up two doves or two pigeons. I say all of that to say that there, there was these rituals in place whenever you had a child, especially a firstborn son, that would uh, be offered up in the temple to consecrate your child. And that might bring to memory, for those of you who know your Bible, another place in Scripture where a firstborn son is consecrated in the temple. Luke 2, 22 through 24. And when the time came for their purification according to the law of Moses, they being Joseph and Mary, brought him up to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. As it is written in the law of the Lord, every male who first opens the womb shall be called holy to the Lord. 
and to offer a sacrifice according to what is said in the law of the Lord, a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. Shows us that Joseph and Mary were faithful. They consecrated their firstborn son. Shows us that they weren't wealthy because they couldn't afford a lamb, so they had two birds. But it shows us that Jesus was consecrated in the temple as the firstborn son. He was offered up. What's interesting there is as Joseph and Mary were doing that, they would have been recalling, remembering what? They would have been looking back all the way to the Exodus and recalling how God had saved them through the judgment of the firstborn sons of Egypt. But as they are in the temple, that's not what the prophets talk about. Simeon and Anna come to them, and they, they aren't looking back to, to what happened in Egypt. They're looking forward to what's going to happen in that sun. Their focus is actually not looking back. Their focus is looking at this son will be the ultimate sacrifice, the ultimate lamb, and he will die in our place. This is the one who we think about now. So this ritual has been transformed to not just looking back and the salvation God accomplished then, but the salvation God is going to accomplish in this son. So whenever we do this ritual of consecrating the firstborn, we look to God's salvation. both forward and backward. We remember how God saved his people through the death of the firstborn son. By a strong hand, the Lord brought us out of Egypt from the house of slavery. For when Pharaoh stubbornly refused to let us go, the Lord killed all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both the firstborn of men and the firstborn of animals. Therefore, I sacrificed to the Lord all the males that first opened the womb, but all the firstborn of my sons I redeemed. This ritual would remind them of what God had done, how God had spared their children. And every time we have firstborn sons and kids and sons and daughters and we don't have to kill them before God, we can be reminded that God has spared us. And though we are fallen and sinful, we can remember that there is a lamb, a firstborn son, who died in our place, and we keep these rituals to remember that. They're strange rituals that we keep, right? Baptism. How's that different from swimming? Well, there's meaning behind it. We, do this, we call it a meal. I'm still going to have lunch afterwards because I'm going to be hungry after bread in the cup, right? And we gather and we sing songs together that nobody plays on... Real radio, I mean, Christian radio maybe. But, but other people don't listen to these songs. We do all these strange things. Why? Because remembering, we're remembering what God has done in Jesus Christ. It keeps his sacrifice close. And it consecrates us to God. We are sanctified, set apart in that. We're called saints by Paul. That's what that means. You're set apart. Even the Corinthians... You read the letter to the Corinthians. Sometimes messed up people, but God calls them saints because they've been set apart by Christ. So God gives his people rituals to remember their redemption. Who can participate? All who profess faith through the covenant sign. What is the purpose of the rituals? To remember. What are we remembering? The redemption that God has provided through the death of his firstborn son. We tend to be a people who look down on ritual. We want what's novel and new and the liturgical stuff. Well, that's boring and it just gets repetitive. We tend to, to want what seems fresh. I don't know, maybe not all of us, but some of us. 
But there's real meaning and real value in the repetition of the ritual. And the Apostles' Creed or something like that might seem old, but when you see a young girl who's memorized it and speaking it with the congregation because she's heard it over and over and over again and it is now in her soul, that starts to mean something. Or when Russ is trained by his parents to speak kindly (laughs) and you recite verses with your children and you find out that they're in them and become a part of them and they shape them, the rituals start to mean a whole lot. There are other things we'll pass down to our kids that are meaningless. You know. There are other things I, I, I'd rather not pass down. Uh, some of my habits, some of my sins, sinful tendencies. There are other things we don't want passed down through generations. Maybe you'll look through old pictures and see hairstyles of days past, and you think, I'm glad we're not passing that down to future generations. Right? There are things you don't want to be passed down. But through these rituals in the church, we can pass down faith from generation to generation and remember what the Lord has done. Would you pray with me? Father, I thank you that not only have you saved us, not only have you delivered us by your grace, but you've given us a way to recall that redemption and call that salvation to our minds afresh because we are prone to forget, we are prone to wander, we're prone to... to, not honor you as we should. So we thank you for these tangible practices you give so that we may recall your goodness and your grace. We pray that that would be very real in us, not only in the words we speak, but even the actions that we do, that they would be shaping and molding for us. I pray, Lord, that as we do these things, that there would be a certain witness about that, that there would be a watching world that sees that there's something different about that and that we might communicate to that world. There's a way you can enter in. There's a way you can participate. You can become a part of this community that is changed, not by our goodness, but by the grace of our God. So help us, Lord, and awaken our hearts to your goodness, your truth, your salvation that you've laid out in your word, and may we worship you as you deserve and as you desire. By your spirit, we pray. Amen.